and welcome to Southern Fried Spooky, the podcast home of all things Southern, spooky, and today, criminally vicious. Criminally vicious. Yeah. We're taking a look at a prominent New Orleans resident whose cruelty was so intense her neighbors rose up against her and caused her to flee. I'm your Carolina girl, Heather. And I'm your kind of confused Florida man, Tony. (laughs) We hope you'll share us with your friends, your colleagues, your family. Please find us on Facebook and see some good bonus material, links, and photos, mm-hmm. etc. Well, we also have a Patreon and stuff, so... And stuff. Yep. We do. That helps us out a lot. So today, I feel like we should add a, I don't know, like capital letters, major trigger warning on this one. Yeah. But I'm not sure where to start. <laughs> Today's story looks at Madame La Lurie, who is famous for her cruelty to her enslaved staff. And it's one of those things in Southern history that many people owned other people, which is bad enough in the best of circumstances. And our subject is one of those who delighted in the power she had to inflict injury. It's been proven time and again that all too often, humans in position of power absolutely abuse it. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes, it does. The officers and guards at um, concentration camps or even the college experiment that uh, somebody did that they had to be shut down because... The kids in power went a little power mad with it. Yep. So were there slave owners or even guards at the concentration camps who had a modicum of compassion? Probably. Yeah, there's been a couple of things that I've read about compassionate guards and owners and stuff. Yeah, not everyone's cut out for that sort of brutality. No. However, the one we're talking about today certainly did not have compassion for those she and society saw as lower than herself. Yeah. So, the background, the history. Marie Delphine McCarty was born in New Orleans at the time Spanish Louisiana on March 19th, 1787. Mm -hmm. She was one of five children. Her father was Louise Bartholomew de McCarty, who brought the family to New Orleans from Ireland around 1730, during the French colonial period. Her mother was Marie-Jeanne Lerable, Delphine's parents were prominent members of the town's European Creole community. Other members of Delphine's family held positions of power and influence. As a note, your Florida man is looking at these names going, Huh? I was a French major. Yeah. This is not French. Esteban Rodriguez Miro was governor of the Spanish-American provinces of Louisiana and Florida during 1785 and 1791. And her cousin... Augustin de McCarty was mayor of New Orleans from 1815 to 1820. So she was in a really predominant family. Very much ruling class, aristocratic kind of thing. Like, I I know very little about this woman, like, from what I've seen on on American Horror Story. That's about a little fictional. It's fictional, but that's, like, I knew she was a real person. Just like I knew that Elizabeth Bathory, real person. Yes. But... I think they kind of obscured it, but we're about to get a crash course in what not to be. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. Now, the Haitian Revolution, okay, here's some history here, erupted in 1791, and Mm -hmm. that event terrified slaveholders in the southern United States and the Caribbean. Delphine's uncle had been murdered in 1771 by his slaves. And the revolution inspired the local Mina conspiracy in 1791, the Pointe Coupes conspiracy in 1795, and the 1811 German Coast Uprising. All of which, and I don't know why they would think this, but this would cause the slaveholders to abuse the slaves even more, even more harshly out of fear of insurrection. 
which, you know, it's one of those vicious cycles, I guess. Yeah. Now, in Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War, I don't know if you watched that, it's glorious. I recall a quote that many Southerners felt about the institution of slavery and its reality. The quote was to the effect of, slavery is about like holding a wolf by the ears. You don't like it, but you don't dare let go. Wow. Yeah, it's it's an interesting quandary. Now, Delphine would have been four at the time of all of this, shall we say, unrest. By 1794, her family had 1,344 acres plantation between Bartholomew and Independence. That's like six miles. Backing up to St. Claude Avenue and next door to the famously wealthy Count Pierre-Philippe Mandeville de Marigny. I don't know who that is. That's like eight kilometers. (laughs) So it's a big place. Now here's where something kind of gets interesting. The race barriers in New Orleans at this time are kind of murky. Yeah. When Delphine's mother passed away in 1807, her father, shall we say, explored companionship in an unconventional but popular manner. The Chevalier Louise Bartholomew de McCarty had a long-term relationship with a free quadroon, that is someone who has one quarter African-American, Sophie Moussant. New Orleans history tells us of quite a few wealthy Creole men practicing the cohabitation with women of color. Delphine's father, uncle, cousins, and associates contributed to the development of biracial free people of color. And these women were referred to in the legal system as a concubine. The Creoles called them ménagères or placés. Now, what do these mean? I'm not exactly sure. Research proves that there were quite a few women of mixed race who were in relations and had children with the McCarty men. So while Delphine is noted for um, being rather cruel to the African-American slaves, she, or just African slaves she had, she wasn't entirely unrelated to many of them. Right. So little Delphine grows up. On June 11th, 1800, 13 years old, Delphine married Don Ramon de Lopez y Angulo, a caballero de la Royal de Carlos, which is basically... A 35-year-old high-ranking Spanish royal officer. Can you say his name one more time? Don Ramon de López y Angulo. Wow. Okay. I will say I took several years of Spanish, but I was always told my Spanish sounded like I had a French accent. It kind of does, but it still sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) He was a high-ranking Spanish royal officer at the San Luis Cathedral Cathedral in New Orleans. Now, how how did you say someone told you how to pronounce that city? St. Louis. No. Oh. Doofus. It's, it's, it's not New Orleans. It's Nolans. Right. Yes. So I believe told. I believe it was, my dear boy, you're doing it wrong. It is Nolans. I would have given anything to like hear that myself. <laughs> now think about this. I know we get a little queasy these days about people who, like girls who are young with older men. He's 35. She's 13. And they had a torrid romance with an unexpected pregnancy. Okay, so all I'm going to say, and I know this doesn't make up for it, but it's 1800. True. But the, 13 their, is kind of young even for them. Their whole thing back then was if you can bleed, you can breed. True enough. It's the, the affair that or the romance that gets me. So after 1804, or in 1804, after the American acquisition of what was then a French territory, mm-hmm. New Orleans and Louisiana gets passed around a lot. Don Ramon had been appointed to the position of Consul General for Spain in the territory of... I'm not even sure how they would say it. I would say Orléans, but that's the French pronunciation. 
and was called to appear at the court of Spain. Yeah. Don Ramon was not really thrilled with the Spanish crown. Um, it is considered that he harbored some bitterness and blame with the death of his first wife. He's on record as saying that they were sent over from Spain at the worst time of year. She was sick and, well, died on the way. So, and with that bitterness came a little titch of rebellion. So Don Ramon vexed Spain for the last time when he opened the importation of captives directly from Africa, defying direct orders that Spain had implemented. The orders prohibited the importation until hostilities had settled and had become a more peaceful environment in the human trafficking trade. Good lord. Because, you know, that's always peaceful. Yeah. It is also speculated that Spain reprimanded him for marrying a local woman without permission. The crown- How dare you marry a white girl? What is wrong with you? Or a local girl. I mean, she might not have been all white. So the crown, you know, just to, because they could, were sending him all over the globe, which basically kind of cut down on the prominence of his position. This, now, tra- this translates into the military sending you to work in Siberia somewhere? Probably. So Ramon boarded a ship in Bordeaux to make his way back to his now expectant 14-year-old wife. On January 1805, his vessel hit a sandbar off the shores of Havana and Ramon was killed. Tragedy. Good Lord, how fast were they going? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. It was like, uh, like you, you've been in car accidents. You know that abrupt stop where you just, you're just you flung forward. Can you imagine sitting out there going, Ah, look at that. Ah, the most lovely of... Oh, my God! <laughs> oh, my God. It's like everybody just shoots forward and you just see splashes. <laughs> Did we fire on something? No, we hit a sandbar, sir. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's like, imagine the guy in the crow's nest. He's <laughs> like definitely have that whole um, Doppler effect. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> See, that would be the perfect place for a Willem scream. Now, when he did this, it doesn't say anything about the rest of the crew. Um, he was the only one that died. I don't know. So we hit a sandbar. No. <laughs> Everyone else, we're good. <laughs> He's a very jumpy sword. <laughs> well, he was already angry. Why not? <laughs> Anyway, at this time, Delphine gave birth to their daughter. Now, this is an interesting name. It's French and Spanish. Marie Delphine Francisca Borja Lopez y Angulo de la Candelaria. Holy crap. They nicknamed her Borgita. Lilu. Just Lilu, okay? Now, Delphine stayed in Havana long enough to bury her husband and have her daughter baptized. How nice. I'm not dead yet. (laughs) She then returned to her home in New Orleans, a young widow, a mother... To discover that New Orleans was no longer under Spanish or French rule, but, well, was under American ownership. Sort of like Transylvania keeps going back and forth between Romania and Hungary. Right. (laughs) And occasionally the Ottoman Empire. Well, what about Istanbul? We're not even going to go there. Enter husband number two, Jean-Paul Blanc. Not Benoit Blanc. That would have been cool, though. He was a prominent banker, merchant, lawyer, and legislator. Why is it that men in the 1800s seem to have five jobs or, like, mega positions? And 18 names. I know, right? Well, he only has the three, so... He, he at least was not Spanish with 15 names. So he arrived in New Orleans with, with an agenda... He was a ruthless businessman, again, is there any other kind, who had been active in the slave trade as well as politics and an associate to the notorious pirate brothers Jean and Pierre Lafitte. Lafitte. Sorry. Yeah, they always come up with uh, Pirates of the Caribbean for some reason. Mm. Lafitte. Delphine's inheritance made for a healthy dowry, 
for the marriage to her new husband. Her mother also left her a downtown plantation on the bank of the Mississippi River, 52 slaves and livestock and farm equipment. Her father gifted Delphine and Blanc another plantation, property on Chartres Street, and an additional 26 slaves. I think at this point she has a small country. And she's owned half an island, yeah. In today's value, her inheritance was worth over $2 million. Good lord. In June 1808, she's now 21, they got married. At the time of the marriage, Blanc purchased a house in 409 Royal Street in New Orleans for the family, which became later known as the Villa Blanc. That's just so exciting. Now, she had four children. Get prepared for these names. Marie-Louise Pauline, Louise-Marie-Laure, Marie-Louise-Jeanne, and Jean-Pierre Paulin Blanc. The last one is a boy. Wow. Yeah. She wasn't very um, imaginative with her names, was she? She rearranged them nicely each time. <laughs> now, Blanc himself died in 1816. Okay. More history. Delphine was just 28 at this point and was left to settle Blanc's estate. Unfortunately, his estate was mostly debts, which totaled to over 160000 or almost $2.5 in today's currency. So in 1816, she basically had to renounce their community property to the courts and forfeited all of their mutual assets in order to protect and keep her personal property and assets, which was still quite a lot. Yeah. So in a way, she sort of declared bankruptcy on his part, but kept all of her... She, remember, she has like two extra plantations now and, and an obscene amount of people. So over the next 10 years, Delphine auctioned off much of Blanc's property, including the enslaved persons, to try and pay off his debts. And she even purchased one piece of his property herself at auction and definitely kept some of his people. Now, curiously, records show that eight of the enslaved people she now owned died in a span of about eight years, and most were children or women of childbearing age, and the causes of death are unknown. You gotta love it when that crap happens. Well, and the thing is, like, it's the 1800s, and they're in Louisiana. It, I mean, it could have been natural causes, whatever, sickness... But unknown, again, there's also the thing of maybe they just didn't care enough to say what it was. Well, we got a new cook. Her name's Mary. <laughs> Sorry. So, now we are on to... Uh, is this boring? <laughs> I can't tell. It'll get interesting soon, I, I hope. So now we're on to husband number three. Dr. Louis Lalaurie came into the picture in 1825. Delphine was now an experienced and shrewd woman of wealth. And had about 86 names. Lalaurie arrived from France with a mission to start his physician practice of destroying hunches. He was basically a chiropractor. Oh. Straightening crooked backs. That's very clinical. And in 1826, one of Delphine's children, though it does not say which one, needed some help being straightened out. Henceforth, the romance began. On June 25th, 1825, Delphine, now 38, married her third husband, physician Leonard Louis Nicolas Lalaurie, who was 15 years younger than she. Oh, wow. And at this point, they already had a child out of wedlock. It should be mentioned that her prenup, or what we would now call a prenup, specified that she would retain all her property, money, etc., and manage it all on her own. Okay. That was not a common thing that happened back yeah. then. Usually, once a man marries, he gets all the wife's stuff. She was not having that. In 1831, she bought property at 1140 Royal Street, and I think this is the infamous house. Mm -hmm. In 1832, she had a two-story mansion built there, complete with attached slave quarters. And from this vantage point, she maintained a central position in New Orleans society. Because of course she would. Madame Lalaurie was well known for her spectacular parties and galas. 
She was one of the most well-known women in New Orleans society at the time. Renowned voodoo queen Marie Laveau mm. lived in New Orleans at the same time, yes. just a few blocks from the Lalaurie House. Which is another person I would love to cover. Now, the nature of their relationship is unknown, but it's pretty safe to say they probably knew each other. Yeah. <laughs> It was said that Madame La Lurie's manners were sweet, gracious, and captivating. I mean, she was born in society's upper circles. She was accustomed to and acculturated to the good life. But there were um, rumors that started to circulate that she treated her servants and slaves with disdain and in a cruel, abusive manner. The marriage was starting to show signs of strain, however. Um, at one point in 1832... Delphine petitioned her the first district court for separation from bed and board of her husband, in which Delphine claimed that La Lurie had treated her in such a manner as to render their living together unsupportable. He didn't put the seat down. Probably not. Claims to which her son and two daughters, by Jean Blanc, definitely confirmed. According to the children and some other letters... The couple fought often, separated, got back together, on and on. And the first mention of her cruelty to the slaves could be found in pages of his letters. He was estranged but present at the time of the fire. The fire. The fire. Is this the fire that burnt down like half of New Orleans? No. Oh, okay. It did not, but it burnt down like half her house. No, oh, okay. Now, in 1838, Harriet Martineau was uh, a journalist writing tales told to her by New Orleans residents during her 1836 visit, mm -hmm. and she claimed that slaves of La Lurie were observed to be singularly haggard and wretched. However, in public, La Lurie was seen to be generally polite to black people and solicitous of the health of those enslaved in public. In public. Southern people are generally adept at keeping up appearances. Now, Martineau was... Hence a that whole bless your heart thing. Absolutely. Martineau was a prolific writer of her time and had this strange notion that in order to sum up society, one must observe all of it, even the unfortunate, the poor, the marginalized. It was a radical thought for the time. Well, I believe there was one person, can't think of his name rightly, but he said to judge a man by his character, you need only know how he treat his slaves. And in fact, that evolved to, to judge a man by his character, you need only look at how he treats animals. Well, let's also be a little blunt for a lot of people back at this time i think slaves were essentially counted as livestock which is a freaking sad commentary but yes you're right well i mean it's the same thing of where if people mistreat animals other people get upset well it doesn't serve you any good to mistreat your workers yeah paid or not but there were those who did but yeah, I think any you know you treat anyone who is seen as under you less than you. I mean, at this point, it could even you know apply to you know a Employees, red flag on dates. Yeah, you know, if it's, yeah. if your date is mean to the waitress, that that's big a no. <laughs> big red flag. Uh, there was one date that I went on, and I took the girl to. Uh, I believe I showed it to you. It's a place called the Hitching Post. Oh yeah, it's a little bar. They have like they do like bar food there, but they also have pool tables. We took, and the woman come by and ask us what we want to drink, and the girl just started giving her shit for the way she looked, and I was like, yeah, this is over. Oh wow. Yeah. Out of curiosity, how long were you in food service? Oh god. Usually as a cook, not a waiter. Yeah, usually as a cook, but I'm gonna go ahead and say probably 25 of my 43 years I was actually. Wow. In food service. I could see how that would end fast for you. Yes. In food service. Matter of fact, in retail. That's when an equivalent. People, when people treat you like crap, 
that is their character. Oh, yeah. Like, you can always tell the person who's having a bad day as opposed to the person who just treats you like crap. Who just lives that yeah. way, yeah. Shall we get back to the story? Yeah, sorry. No, no worries. We probably needed a moment. <laughs> <laughs> now, funeral registers between 1830 and 34 document the deaths of 12 slaves at Royal Street Mansion. Now, the causes of death are, as again, not mentioned. One could assume contagion, infection, the typical causes of death. In the 1800s, yes. Mm-hmm. But among the 12 dead are Bun, a cook and laundress. It's spelled B-O-N-N-E, not Bun. Wouldn't it be Bon then? Eh, it, it, this is me being a French major. Oh. And her four children, Juliet, 13. 13. Florence, 10. Jules, 7. And I love this name, Leontine, 3. Now, Bon herself was 30. 30 and she had been enslaved by a refugee from Saint-Domingue and was described in her sale as a chronic runaway. Say that name again? I'm not entirely you sure. It, you said it French-like. I said Saint-Domingue. Okay. It so, could be Saint-Domingo. I don't actually know. Well, if you look at it, it says Saint-Domingue. <laughs> no. Domingue. How about that? Saint-Domino. Yes. Court records of the time, I feel like I'm really just plowing through this now, <laughs> show that La Lurie actually freed two slaves, Jean-Louis. Everyone has French names. I, I love that name, though. Jean-Louis. Really? I think it's pretty. In 1819. And Devance. <laughs> just a moniker. Like, Devance. you have no last name, your name is Devance. Well, they probably didn't have last names. In 1832. Now, Martineau, remember her? Yeah. She wrote that public rumors about La Lurie's mistreatments of slaves on her property were sufficiently rife that a local lawyer was sent to remind Lalaurie of the laws for the upkeep of slaves. Like, there is a certain baseline of decency that had to be observed. Yes, yes, absolutely. During this wellness visit, the lawyer found no evidence of wrongdoing or mistreatment of slaves by Lalaurie. Now, keep in mind when I'm saying this, I am not defending slavery in no, the no. least, but what I'm saying is, back then... To own a slave, you had to be able to provide for that slave. Well, absolutely. You, had, you couldn't just go, okay, work, now go sleep in the basement. You had to be able to, with their upkeep, you had to be able to clothe them, feed them. House uh, them. Like, house them. I mean, there were rules to this. Like I said, not defending slavery in any way, but there were laws to this. Yeah, which is also good to know. Now, Martineau also recorded other tales of Lalaurie's cruelty that were floating amongst the New Orleans residents, which basically means gossip. Yeah. Scuttlebutt. Um, yeah. Um, allegedly, one of Madame Lalaurie's neighbors saw an eight-year-old slave girl fall to her death from the roof of the Royal Street Mansion. I've, I've heard this story before. She was trying to avoid punishment from a whip-wielding Lalaurie, and the body was buried in the mansion grounds. Good lord. Another writer... Jeanne de Lavinia, in her 1945 account, gave the child's ages 12 and gave her a name, Leah. Not sure if that's true or not. Other writers have elaborated on the incident, suggesting that Leah had been brushing Delphine's hair and she, you know, pulled her hair on a tangle. And Delphine, rather enraged, picked up a whip and chased her all the way up to the top of the house and off a roof, apparently. Good lord. Yeah. According to Martineau, this deadly incident led to an investigation of the La Lauries, in which they were found guilty of illegal cruelty as opposed to the legal sort. Mm-hmm. And they were forced to forfeit nine whole slaves of their household. Now, these nine people were bought back by an intermediary relative, 
and returned to the Royal Street residence. I'm sure they were delighted. Similarly, Martineau recounts stories that Lalaurie kept her cook chained to the kitchen stove and beat her own daughters when they attempted to feed the enslaved of the Royal Street residence. I assume that means extras, not just what their their base requirement. Yeah. So, now we're finally getting to the fire. I really had way too much time to research this. I'm sorry. <laughs> On April 10th, 1834, a fire broke out in the Lalaurie residence on Royal Street. No, to put out a fire like half her house, you would have a bunch of guys with two wagons and these wagons had big wooden casks on it and they would dip water in and move buckets back and forth to throw water. They didn't the actual pressur- bucket brigade. Yeah, they huh? did not have pressurized water back then. Oh yeah. But they they uh, I'd say around the 1840s is when they started using hand pumps. Oh, okay. You remember the things like I never see them in real life, but like in westerns or something, you'll see these two guys pushing up and down on uh-huh. this and moving the cart. That's sort of the way their pressure worked. They'd have two gentlemen pushing up and down on the seesaw, and that would push the water out. But that, like, sort of like a bellows for water. Okay. But that didn't come around until like the 1850s. Well, and this is the 1830s. Now, eventually, when the police and the fire marshals got there, they found the cook, who was a 70-year-old woman was indeed chained to the stove by her ankle. And the cook later said that she had set the fire as a suicide attempt because she feared being punished. Like, fire would be better than whatever was going to happen to her, apparently. She also explained that slaves taken to the uppermost room, I guess the attic, never came back. Now, as reported in the New Orleans Bee of April 11th, 1834, bystanders responding to the fire attempted to enter the quarters of those enslaved to ensure that everyone, to be sure that everyone had been evacuated. Mm -hmm. Now, upon being refused the keys by the Lalauries, the bystanders broke down the doors to the quarters and found, well, here's where we get to American Horror Story, seven slaves, more or less horribly mutilated, suspended by the neck, with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. That was a quote. And they had claimed to have been imprisoned there for some months. Wow, some people. <laughs> one of those who entered the premises was Judge Jean-Francois Canonge, who was a neighbor. This judge would later state in a deposition to have found in the Lalaurie mansion, among others, a, this is his word, negress, black woman wearing an iron collar, and an old woman who had received a very deep wound on her head, too weak to be able to talk or walk. Canonge said that when he questioned Lalaurie's husband about those enslaved on the property, he was told in an insolent manner that some people had better stay at home rather than come to others' houses to dictate laws and meddle with other people's business, even when their house is on fire. Yeah, I think you should have executed the whole family at this point. (laughs) In a version of the story circulated in 1836, recounted by Martineau, adding that the slaves were emaciated, showed signs of being whipped, and were bound in restrictive postures, and wore spiked iron collars which kept their heads in static position. In the book, Madame Lalaurie, Mistress of the Haunted House, which is funny because it does, I don't actually know much about the haunting. Right. Carolyn Morrow Long does a wonderful job in presenting all of the recorded statements, as well as the media claims and articles in regard to the atrocities that were found inside the Lalaurie Mansion. She delivers to the reader the different points of view of the time, and she points out where the lines of fact can be linked by connecting prior accusations and concerns. Because, of course, a lot of this got... I mean, it was bad enough, but it definitely got conflated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, upon the discovery of these violently abused slaves, a mob of local citizens expected the police to 
arrest the offenders. You know, they started out, they, the people, you know, helping them by taking furniture and moving it out of the house. Yeah. And then once they discovered all this, they were waiting for an arrest or something. The day wore on with no sign of any such justice. So the mob became angry. And then they attacked the Lallery residents and demolished and destroyed everything upon which they could lay their hands. Now, keep in mind, I remember reading about this part. This wasn't just black people. These were white people, other slave owners who saw this and were like, you don't treat people like this, and screwed that house up. Yeah, kind of trashed it. Now the sheriff and his officers were finally called upon to disperse the crowd. And by the time said mob was dispersed, the property was reduced to scarcely anything but the walls. Mm-hmm. Now, for reasons I don't understand, Madame Delphine Lallerie did have one loyal servant, he was a slave, on her staff. So amidst the mayhem and the flames, her enslaved coachman, Bastien, brought her carriage around, and she stepped into it with complete confidence. The mob was stunned initially, and it said that the angry citizens tried to hold the horses and snatch her from the carriage, but the coachman used his whip to fend off the people, and away they went, escaping the crowd. Because if if anything, if you were afraid of her, it's like, this is your chance. She can't do anything if you don't show up. Yeah. She, you know, people are watching. She can't abuse you in front of everyone. This is your chance to have her taken out. I don't know what his thing was. Probably conditioning in some sort. Oh, absolutely. Like, there's some sort of conditioning going on. Now, get this. As if what they suffered in this attic was not somehow enough, the rescued slaves um, became their own evidence. They were taken to a local jail, I guess because they just didn't have anywhere else to put them. Yeah. Where they were made available for public viewing. The Bee, one of the little newspapers, newspaper. reported that by April 12th, up to 4,000 people had attended to view the slaves to convince themselves of their sufferings. Then again, this is a time and place where people regularly viewed embalmed bodies or... Yeah, and just like back then, they, they, would, they had a living room specifically because that's where the living would stay. I mean, they had parlors where they would prop their dead up just to take True. pictures with them. Yeah. There's um, a reason why it is called the living room. Well, as opposed to the dead room. Yes. Um, but it is also... I'm hoping this doesn't mean that they didn't treat them. The You know, they just put them on display. I'm hoping that they got some hospital yeah. care of some sort. Now, the Pittsfield Sun, citing the New Orleans Advertiser and writing several weeks after the evacuation of Lallery's quarters of slaves, claimed that two of the slaves found in the mansion had died since the rescue. And added, we understand that in digging the yard, bodies have been disinterred and the condemned well in the grounds of the mansion have been uncovered. Others, particularly that of a child, were found. So basically, they were finding people in the backyard. Yes. She had her enslaved digging graves for the other enslaved. And I imagine that was a good morale killer of, you know, and a great way to stay in line good or Lord. you'll be next. I don't know. So, Lalaurie's life after the 1834 fire is not terribly well documented. Mm-hmm. Martineau wrote in 1838 that Lallerie fled New Orleans during the mob violence that followed the fire, taking the coach to the waterfront and traveling by schooner to Mobile, Alabama. Oh, God. And then to Paris. <laughs> by the time Martineau personally visited the Royal Street Mansion in 1836, it was still unoccupied and badly damaged. Now, living with his mother and two sisters in exile in Paris, Delphine's son, Paulin Blanc, wrote in 1842 to his brother-in-law, a Auguste Dulacis, I don't know, stating that Delphine was serious about returning to New Orleans and had thought about doing so for a long time. She was 
oblivious to the human rights outrage she had caused. It was her children and their disapproval and that of other relatives that convinced her to cancel this return. Oh, and I hate to say it, even like even if her if it were just her kids showing up, if anybody knew that like they were related to her, they would have killed them too. Well, this is what he puts in a letter. She's been thinking about this for a long time. We comfort ourselves with the hope that moments of bad humor alone could make her nourish such a thought. Referring to the sad memories of the catastrophe of 1834, Paulin conveyed that he, who had lived with her and studied her for years, had seen that time hasn't changed anything in that indomitable nature, and that by her character she is again preparing many sufferings for her children. I bemoan the fate that awaits us as ever again my mother sets foot in that place where her conduct elicited general disapproval. Talk about understatement. Right. She has caused us to shed many tears, and where she goes, we prepare ourselves for bad news owing to her presence. That is her son's summation of her. Good lord. But very eloquent. Well, as you know, back then they did write so eloquently. I love all the Civil War era letters. Now... The circumstances of Lalaurie's death, also unclear. In 1888, George Washington Cable recounted a popular but unsubstantiated story that Lalaurie had died in France in a boar-hunting accident. That sounds exciting. I don't think it was true. (laughs) In the late 1930s, Eugene Beck, who served as sexton to the St. Louis Cemetery No. 1 until 1924, discovered an old cracked copper plate in Alley 4 of the cemetery, and the inscription on the plate read, Madame Lalaurie, née Marie Delphine McCarty, décédée à Paris, le 7 décembre, not going to say the year, à l'âge de 62. Would you like that in English? Um, hold on. Let me see if my French... Okay, so Madame Lalaurie... Well done. Born in Marie Delphine Cath... McCarty, McCarty, or whatever that name is. Des... I don't know that one. Died. Is that died? One of the many words for it. In Paris on December 7th, 1842. Not bad. At age 62. Bien fait. Well done. I'm learning a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so the original New Orleans mansion occupied by Lalaurie clearly did not survive. The impressive mansion at 1140 Royal Street on the, on the corner of Governor Nichols Street, formerly known as Hospital Street, commonly referred to as the LaLaurie or Haunted House, is not the same building inhabited by LaLaurie because, well, it burnt down. Uh, yeah, and was destroyed by an angry mob. And when she acquired the property back in 1831 from Edmund Saunier Dufossant, yeah, the house was already under construction. So this house burned by the mob, 1834, Mm -hmm. and remained in a ruined state for another four years. Okay. Now, after 1838, it was rebuilt by Pierre Trasteur, which is such a cool-sounding name, and that is the building that is there today. I have not seen it. I've never been to New Orleans. I want to be. You've never been to New Orleans? No. Oh, my God. And over the next passing decades, it was used as a public high school, a conservatory of music, an apartment building, a refuge for young delinquents, a bar, a furniture store, and back to a luxury apartment building. Wow. Now get this. This is kind of cool. In 2007, Nicolas Cage bought the house for $3.45 million. To protect the actor's privacy, the mortgage documents were arranged in such a way that Cage's name did not appear on them. I guess he couldn't use Coppola either. I was about to say Coppola wouldn't have worked either. Yes, Nicolas Cage is the nephew yes. of Francis Ford Coppola. 
And that is his name. Cage is the stage name. Yeah, his his name is actually Nicholas Coppola. I am curious what name they put on there. I don't know. Now, in 2009, the property was valued at $3.5 million, was listed for auction. It basically got foreclosed upon. Mm. Poor Nicholas Cage. And the property last changed hands in 2010 when it was purchased by the current owner, Michael Whalen, for $2.1 million. Mm. Now... Going back a little bit to the yeah. actual spooky part, folk histories of LaLaurie's abuse and murder of those enslaved on the property circulated in Louisiana during the 19th century and was reprinted in collections of stories. I've already mentioned George Washington Cable, and there's another one, Henry Castellanos. Cable's account was based on contemporary reports in newspapers, such as the New Orleans Bee and the Advertiser, and upon Martineau's 1838 account, Retrospect of Western Travel, and he added some of his own speculation. But after 1945, accounts of those enslaved by Lalaurie became much more explicit. Jean de Lavigne, writing in Ghost Stories of Old New Orleans, alleged that Lalaurie had a sadistic appetite that never seemed appeased until she had inflicted on one or more of her black servitors some hideous form of torture, and claimed that those who responded to the 1834 fire had found male slaves, this is going to get gross, Stark naked, chained to the wall, their eyes gouged out, their fingernails pulled off by the roots. Ah! Others had their joints skinned and festering, great holes in their buttocks where flesh had been sliced away. I'm getting so grossed out. Their ears hanging by shreds, their lips sewn together. Intestines were pulled out and knotted around their waists. There were holes in skulls where a rough stick had been inserted to stir the brains. De Lavinia did not cite any sources for these claims, and they were not supported by primary sources. But it does add sensationalism to what was already a pretty sensational story. Right? Now. This is one of those stories where you'd have to dumb it down to make it believable. It Just about. The story was further embellished in Journey into Darkness, Ghost and Vampires of New Orleans by Kalila Katharina Smith. Almost disappointing there. She's the operator of a New Orleans ghost tour business. Smith's book added several more explicit details to the discoveries allegedly made by the rescuers, including a victim who obviously had her arms amputated and her skin peeled off in a circular pattern, making her look like a human caterpillar, and another who had limbs broken and reset at odd angles so she resembled a human crab. Yeah, many of these new details in Smith's book were unsourced, and others were not supported by the sources given. So, definitely getting into, like, the torture porn level yeah. of, of explicitness here, I guess. So today, modern retellings of the Lollary legend often use these grosser <laughs> versions of the tales as a basis for claims of explicit tortures, and the number of enslaved people living on the property who died under Lollary's care, as many as a hundred. But... As you mentioned earlier, not unlike tales of Elizabeth Bathory, it's kind of my belief that while certainly horrible things happened, I think some of the stories were crafted to make Madame Lalaurie seem more monstrous. Yeah. Like, I don't think she could have created a human centipede back in the day. I could be wrong, and I don't... I'm just surprised somebody created that movie. Right? And made a sequel. Two. Yeah. And I don't think she managed to torture a hundred people to death in horrifyingly creative ways. And... And weirdly, some of the stories attributed to Lalaurie also sound suspiciously similar like Bathory. to Bathory's yeah, atrocities. Like Bathory. Yeah, yeah, it's that's that's one of the things when you read them, I was like, didn't they say that about Elizabeth Bathory? And there <laughs> again, those stories were written by the well, her political enemies. So while she was probably not a saintly person, I don't think she was as bad as she is made out to be in history. 
right? It's very convenient. Yeah. Especially to women in power. Because let's not forget, La Lurie was definitely a woman with power mm-hmm. and money. Okay, so you wanted to get to American Horror Story. Yes. So Kathy Bates... Of course, the most amazing actress ever. She is kind of amazing. She got to play a very heavily fictionalized version of the character in the third season of the anthology television series American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. That one was Coven, which weirdly was not my favorite, but it it was pretty good. I saw parts of Coven. I watched the first two seasons, and then I watched parts of Coven, and after that I kind of gave up. I think one of my favorite moments of this was there's like one black woman who's in the in this mostly white coven. Yeah. And she somehow <laughs> they have brought Lalaurie. La She's been immortal in her grave for centuries. They Underneath pull her out. The steps. <laughs> yeah, they pull her up and then they force her to watch modern news, the entirety of Roots. Mm-hmm. And she gets to listen to the then President Obama speak and let me tell you she was a little shocked by I think their line was, there's a docky for president. Wow. Yeah. It might have been a bit of a culture shock. And it just, it did kind of make me feel slightly proud of ah, how far we've come. Right. Kathy Bates earned a primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actress. Absolutely. In a limited or anthology series or a movie. That's a long title. Now, much of what was written for her seems to be kind of based on these more sensationalized versions. Yeah. And American Horror Story, of course... Showed it all in unsettling detail. The guy with the bull mask. Oh, yeah, that was weird. Yeah. I could be wrong, but I think that was supposed to be Bastien, her driver. I don't know why I thought mm. that. And, of course, Marie Laveau was in there, and she was awesome. Yeah. Again, I still want to cover her. I know, I know. I've been to her burial site, like her grave. It's freaking awesome. I don't. Did I ever tell you, like, we went there, and I was just walking back to go and see it, and there was a line of people waiting at her grave. Wow. Just to give her things and to, to, to ask her for things. Like, it, it's awesome. I do want to see it. Oh, and as a side note, in the series, in American Horror Story, Lalaurie and Marie Laveau had met, but were bitter enemies and were both somehow kind of immortal. Okay, well, that is all I have, which is probably enough, on yep. the Lalaurie story. I hope you enjoyed it. I have. A, it feels weird to say that. <laughs> Despite the unsettling details... I did enjoy researching it, and I've always yeah. been fascinated by this sort of thing. Well, I mean, I I think we don't cover enough true crime. Well, true. I, I And to me, this stuff is still spooky. It is. You know, just the... I, well, it, allegedly, the house is still haunted. Yeah. Probably, I've heard, by the spirits of those who were so grievously mistreated and killed and all that. Yeah. I don't know any of the details of the haunted house, so that could be like an entirely different covering of the subject oh yeah i mean granted even in a society where you're raised to believe you are better than these people but i think most of them also were taught but you have to take care of them yeah granted there is this whole i don't know it's a big hot topic these days and it's really hard to kind of wrap our heads around in a fully well it's one of those things if we weren't there we didn't grow up in that society thank god but still it happened, it needs to be addressed, so it doesn't happen again. I'm just suddenly reminded of this stuff just building into Handmaid's Tale. And, you, I mean, you see what I'm saying? Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if we forget the past, we're going to repeat it. Yeah. That is always a frightful thing. We need to learn from past mistakes, period. Yeah, and you know, as as I mentioned before, as much as people get upset over people who abuse animals, I think people at the time were equally horrified that La Lurie would just toy with uh, her 
her enslaved people. Yeah. I mean, that was just sort of beyond the pale of, you know, that's not even discipline. That's just torture porn. That's, it, it's inhuman. Yeah, it's absolutely inhuman. So that's the spooky part, that there's a woman who can come off as this, you know, beautiful belle, literally of the ball, who gives parties, and that's what she's doing in her attic. Yeah. It's just very creepy. Some people were just that freaking sick. And you kind of wonder how she got to be that way. Or if, in fact, I mean, how much of that was her. I don't know. So many things we don't know. Well, it does seem like her kids think she was a bit of a domineering, scary kind of woman. <laughs> Dear brother, hope my mom dies soon. Love you. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. But I think I have talked myself quite silly. Yes. You didn't have to agree. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> So that is what we have on the La Lurie story. There yes. could be more. There are more details. I sort of did a light skimming to get all of this. This is light skimming? This was two articles as opposed to like the five I usually use. Good lord. I figured if I kept going, we'd be here for like three hours. Yeah. So despite all of that, I hope you enjoyed our presentation. Check us out on social media. Yeah. Join our Patreon. Yep. We have mugs and glitter tumblers. We do, and stickers, and yes, all kinds of crazy stuff. We have yep. all kinds of fun stuff. Yep. And this should be closing out January, so we'd like to Indeed. thank you for this start to our new year. Yeah. Hopefully, twenty twenty three does not suck as bad as the last three years. And I feel like things are slowly getting better. Yeah. But until next time, bye y'all. Bye y'all. See, I could never do that to another human being. Okay, strike that. I can do that to human beings who've done that to other human beings. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's circumstances, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs>